be scriptures this evening as we read from Psalm 127, a short psalm on the blessings of family life, among other things, Psalm 127. And as we look together at the teaching on marriage and divorce as it's contained in our subordinate standard, the Westminster Confession of Faith. Psalm 127, one of the 15 songs of ascents. Unless the Lord builds the house, its builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stand guard in vain. In vain you rise early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat, for he grants sleep to those he loves. Sons are a heritage from the Lord, children a reward from him. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are the sons born in one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be put to shame when they contend with their enemies in the gate. I think we should read Psalm 128 as well because it is on the similar theme of the family. We'll just continue for a moment. Blessed are all who fear the Lord, who walk in his ways. You will eat the fruit of your labor. Blessings and prosperity will be yours. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your sons will be like olive shoots around your table. Thus is the man blessed who fears the Lord. May the Lord bless you from Zion all the days of your life. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem, and may you live to see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. May God indeed bless to us these several portions of his own word this evening. Now, will you turn with me as well as to the scriptures that we have read from to the Westminster Confession of Faith? You'll find the passage on page 685 in the Trinity Hymnal, page 685, and we have come this evening to the chapter on marriage and divorce, chapter 25. Now, as I mentioned in the morning service, Earlier today, in our very morally lax and disordered society in this 20th century, there can scarcely be any subject that's more vital or important for us to think about and consider as Christians than this subject of marriage <clears throat> and divorce. We need, I think, to see with fresh clarity the clear and the <clears throat> unequivocal line of teaching that is given in chapter 25 of our Confession of Faith. Now, as scripture background to the chapter, we could, of course, turn to many passages apart from the two Psalms that we read together this evening. Uh, we could have gone into Genesis chapter 2, the very foundation of marriage, where God brought Adam and Eve together and united them in that first of all human marriages. We read, of course, in that chapter when we dealt with God's work of creation and creation of man. 
We could have gone into many chapters in the New Testament, such as Matthew 19, or Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, or Paul's great passage in Ephesians 5 on the duties of husbands and wives, or into the epistles of Peter, and particularly in 1 Peter chapter 3, where Peter gives certain instructions to husbands and wives. So the sources really are innumerable. The subject itself is vital and important for us to grasp in terms of its scriptural teaching. Now let it be said that when we come to marriage, there are of course many areas of marriage that fall within the private realm rather than the public realm. And the purpose of the Westminster Confession of Faith is not to give us the kind of counsel that a father gives to his son respecting preparation for marriage or a mother gives to her daughter and this should be done in Christian families. But these private areas are ones that are not usually suitable for public consumption. What the confession is doing is dealing in a general way with very basic questions affecting the scriptural doctrine of marriage, such as the purpose of marriage and the function of marriage in human society, that marriage should only be in the Lord between professing Christians, the grounds biblically for divorce, because we believe as Christians, I hope that there are grounds for biblical divorce, Sad as this subject is, we are not Catholics who deny the validity of all divorce. And, of course, the question of remarriage enters here. Now, as I said to you last Sunday evening, when we came to the previous chapter on the civil magistrate and dealt with rule and politics, I said to you that the unconverted person, strange as it may seem, is more interested in that kind of subject than in many of the great subjects in the rest of the confession, dealing with Christian doctrine and Christian belief. And it's true again tonight as we come to this chapter. The unconverted person, as soon as he sees marriage and divorce, he is all ears. And, of course, he should want to know what we as Christians believe about these matters, though he would quickly find that what we believe and what he believes is probably gulfs apart the one from the other. Now, I want then to come to these sections and see just how far we uh, will go this evening. We may not finish it, and I don't want to unduly prolong the service. There are only a small number of us here tonight, it seems, because of illness, and the subject is a very vital one, as I indicated. Well, looking with me at the statement in section 1 on page 685, marriage is to be between one man and one woman. Neither is it lawful for any man to have more than one wife, nor for any woman to have more than one husband at the same time. Now, quite clearly here is the principle of monogamy, the divine principle that underlines all true biblical marriages. Marriage is to be between one man and one woman. And in contrast to monogamy, of course, we think of the subject of polygamy that was practiced very widely in the ancient world but still is common in certain parts of the world today.
the practice of having more than one wife, polygamy. It's clear from the teaching of scripture that the divine pattern is one man committed to one woman until God shall separate them by death. Now, how do we know this? It's so basic that we really don't need to underline and underscore it a great deal. We know this from the fact that God instituted marriage at the very first of time. And let me put it to you this way to challenge your thinking, that God introduced to Adam not a harem of women, but one single woman created in the image of God and formed in part from the man's body. You remember how a rib or a part of Adam's body was taken and how God formed from that part a woman and brought it to the man. And he said of her, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. One single woman. And from that divine, creative, initiatory act, we know beyond any shadow of doubt that God's purpose in marriage is the union of one man with one woman until God shall separate them through death. Now, it's very interesting, although the confession doesn't deal with it and we could spend a good deal of time this evening on drawing out the implication of this, that the very fact that the woman was formed in part from the man's body explains why there is a longing for a man to be united in marriage with his wife. He only becomes a whole person, if you like, again when he is united in biblical marriage with someone whom God has planned and indeed made for him. And it's a very significant strand in the doctrine of biblical marriage when you begin to think through the implications of this. Now, you might say to me this evening that isn't it true in the Old Testament that you have even godly men marrying more than one woman, such as Abraham, who took, you remember, as well as Sarah, his, uh, his, Sarah's uh, handmaid to be his wife as well and married her. And you have the instance of both David and Solomon entering into multiple marriage relationships. Yes, it is true. But we have to say that according to Scripture, these liaisons did not have divine approval. If you look in Deuteronomy chapter 17 and verse 17, you find that there God explicitly forbids the king to marry a multiplicity of wives. And by implication... I believe we are to read into that provision that neither should his subjects enter into multiple liaisons either. So not only from the institution of marriage, but certain texts in the Old Testament, it's clear that the divine pattern is monogamy. Neither is it lawful for any man to have more than one wife, nor for any woman to have more than one husband at the same time. So even though polygamy was practiced fairly widely in the Old Testament, it was without divine sanction. And you read in many instances, it led to very considerable problems because of man's propensity to sinfulness and to seek his own gratification rather than living in the will of God. Think only of the example of Abraham or Solomon. 
the immense harm that was brought into both of these godly men's lives when they refused to live within the parameters that God had so clearly set in the divine institution of marriage. Now, as we come to section two, you find the divine purposes for which marriage was originally ordained. Now, it's interesting and very significant to notice that it was ordained for the mutual help of husband and wife. In these two lovely psalms that we read this evening that speak of the blessings of children and of a godly wife, we have to say that the blessings of a family, of an issue from marriage, are very much the secondary part of marriage. And you notice that the Westminster divines very biblically and very wisely indicate that the first purpose is the mutual help of husband and wife. In many of our marriages or marriage services in the Presbyterian uh, denominations, you find that that emphasis is still very graciously and firmly maintained that marriage was instituted by God, I remember from the Scottish Book of Church Order, for the mutual help and encouragement that husband and wife ought to find in each other. And only then is the purpose of a godly issue mentioned, the raising up of children, the increase of mankind. Now, this, as you notice from the book of Genesis chapter 2, is a very firmly biblical emphasis that because of Adam's loneliness, even in the midst of a perfect creation, his lack of companionship, Eve was created as an helpmeet, the King James Version says, for Adam, for his mutual help, comfort, and encouragement. Now, you know, this should say several things to us tonight. And again, I want to challenge your thinking. One of the things it says to us, surely, is this, that the basic unit that God delights to deal with in human society is not the individual. We live so much today in an age that glorifies the individual. It's what I want to do, how I feel, what my needs are, the direction I want to go in. Whereas the biblical emphasis I commend to you both in the Old and the New Testament is that the fundamental unit in human society with which God deals is not the individual but the family, the husband and wife, and the issue that arises from that mutual and biblical union. And we need, beloved, to grasp that emphasis again in the days in which we live. For instance, in our own families, I cannot emphasize enough to you the importance of raising up covenant children in the knowledge and ways of God from the earliest of years. Because the way in which God delights to bring salvation to humankind is most naturally and normally through the unit of the family. And yet you find in so many Christian homes today there is the individual emphasis, not the family emphasis, not the emphasis on the need for family worship and the godly bringing up of children. And yet we see, as I am trying to teach you from Genesis 2, that the fundamental purpose of marriage is to create a unit, a Christian home, a Christian family, 
But through that basic building block of human society, when God enters in, the whole of human society can begin to be leavened. Do you know where juvenile delinquency begins? It doesn't begin with the child, beloved. It begins where? With the parent who has refused to recognize the biblical basis and emphasis on marriage as that unit that God uses profoundly in bringing salvation into the world. Now we need to remember that, I think, very much. We also need to remember as a wife is provided by God to be a mutual helpmeet, that the kind of marriage that Christians should enter into should be a helpful marriage at every level. We'll see this as we come to a later section this evening or next Sunday evening, as the case may be. But let me say at this point that if marriage is ordained for the mutual help of husband and wife, how can you as a Christian man or woman choose to marry an unbeliever? What kind of mutual help will be in that relationship and that liaison. Or even bringing it down to a lower level of common compatibility. If you are a highly intelligent person interested in the arts and music and the finer things of life, what mutual compatibility will there be for you in that marriage if you marry someone? a very low intelligent who has no interest in these things at all. What kind of relationship are you going to have? We need sanctified common sense in thinking about and praying about those marriage partners that we desire if we are unmarried or desire for our children as they grow into the years of maturity. And beloved, now is the time to begin the instruction of our children as to the divine order and requirements of biblical marriage. It is for the mutual help of husband and wife. Now in that too, I should say before we leave that phrase, it does remind us that marriage is one of the means by which a husband and wife should grow in grace. Because certainly the design of God is that the wife should be a helper to lead her husband into spiritual maturity, to achieve all his potential for God. And in a similar way, marriage for the wife is designed that the husband that she has chosen should be such a man that he is able to lead her into the fullness of her potential for Christ within that marriage, and of the spiritual realm, the mutual help, comfort, and encouragement of husband and wife for one another or for each other is of very vital importance indeed. Now, I wonder if we think of marriage in that way. We think of the mutual help being the washing of the dishes and the taking out of the trash can, but do we think of it in terms of the spiritual benefit that should be brought into it? Well, the second purpose is for the increase of mankind with a legitimate issue and of the church with unholy seed. Now, you notice that the Lord commanded the uh, original couple, Adam and Eve, we believe, to multiply and to fill the earth after he had drawn them together on the basis 
of that need of mutual help and encouragement. So it is a secondary purpose of marriage. Now, the interesting thing is you find in the Roman Catholic service of marriage that it's put as the very first purpose for which God instituted marriage. And I feel very sorry, in a sense, for those Roman Catholic couples who are united in a Roman Catholic service of marriage on the understanding that the first and greatest purpose of God is that they might have an issue. Suppose they're not able to have children. Must they not feel very frustrated that they cannot fulfill the Creator's mandate to fill the earth and to multiply and be fruitful? And you see how much more scriptural our emphasis is in the Reformed Church that this is a secondary purpose, that the main purpose of marriage is by no means annulled because a couple in certain circumstances cannot have children together. But it is for the increase of mankind with a legitimate issue. Now, the second part is very interesting, for the church to have a holy seed. Now, do we not forget that today, even as Christians, when we think about marriage. Why has God drawn me together in love to this woman, to this man? Is it not among the other reasons that he is interested in raising up a holy seed? And the reference is from Malachi 2, verse 15, where the verse says, And did not he make one, that is, did not God make one woman, one man, Yet had he the residue of the Spirit, says Malachi, and wherefore one, that he might seek a godly seed. Therefore take heed to your spirit, and let none deal treacherously against the wife of his youth. Malachi is reflecting on the original creative act of God, making one man for one woman, yet he had sufficient power to make many. Why did he make one? Because he sought a godly seed. And so, you see, it should be a very foremost thought in our minds as we live together in holy love that God has drawn us together in order that in the covenant families we establish there might be a holy seed, children who become believers in the Lord. And if we are gifted with children, what a responsibility it is to train them up in the Lord's ways. It is not an optional extra, beloved, where we can say, we rejoice in the mutual love of husband and wife, but children are just an extra that we have to put up with or endure or simply accept or whatever our attitude is. That's why I chose, in preference to other scriptures this evening, Psalm 127, Sons are a heritage from the Lord, children a reward from him. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are sons born in a, in a man's youth. Blessed is the man that has his quiver full of them. And you see, in contrast to the secular society that emphasizes today that children are a burden and a nuisance and an encumbrance, and the sooner you're quit of them, the better, so you can get on with living your own selfish life. In contrast to that attitude is the biblical attitude that they are a solemn trust and stewardship committed to us to bring them up in the ways of the Lord, in his faith and fear. And I believe our Puritan forefathers were right 
in saying that in normal circumstances, that is, in normal days of the church's ministry, when God is not visiting the church with revival power, the main means by which the church multiplies and grows should be by conversions within our own families. And you know, we've gotten away from that today. We've put the emphasis on evangelism and door knocking and distribution of tracts and radio ministries. And I believe that all of these things are right and valid and necessary. But the fundamental emphasis of Scripture, it seems to me, is within our own families. And you know, I have challenged myself often as a Christian father with the thought that my first duty is not to this congregation. My first duty is not to my work as a pastor. My first and main duty lies directly between the back door and the front door of my own home. When you think of that, you begin to see the importance of Christian marriage and the teaching that we're dealing with here, that God will raise up in our families a holy seed to serve him. And there's a sense in which my ministry has utterly failed. However I may preach to you, however I may lead a congregation, if in my own home there is not the godly leadership that satisfies my wife and blesses my children and leads in God's providence to their becoming, as we see here, believers in the Lord Jesus in his own time and way. Now, the third purpose of marriage, and I'm going to finish with this this evening, is for the preventing of uncleanness. And again, in our Presbyterian marriage service, that is the third one that is mentioned. I'm encouraged this evening to see how our Presbyterian marriage order keeps within both Scripture and the confession of faith. Why did God institute marriage? To bless mankind with mutual help, comfort, and encouragement. To increase mankind, and particularly his church, but thirdly, for the prevention of uncleanness. Now, you find that teaching in a number of places, but particularly in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 2, where Paul says, Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, that is, sexual intercourse outside of marriage, let every man have his own wife, and let every woman have her own husband. And again in verse 9, speaking of the unmarried, if they cannot contain, that is, if they cannot... Uh, uh, restrict their sexual desires when they are single, then let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn. That is to say, to let lust burn within you to the point where it leads you into sin. Now, I believe that the apostle is not in these verses saying that marriage is a second best, it's better to remain single, and only if you can't uh, control your sexual desires you should marry. He's not saying that at all. He's saying that one of the reasons why God instituted marriage is in order to prevent uncleanness, as our Westminster divines so clearly point out. So in order to maintain right standards of sexuality and chastity within society, God has given an outlet for the legitimate sexual desire that he has placed within us. Let me say that there is nothing unclean in sex biblically understood. I think we all realize that here. We don't need to underscore it in this congregation. Uh, sex is not a dirty word unless it is used in an unbiblical context.
It is a gift of God. It is a divine institution. It is an instinct implanted by the Creator Himself for the very purposes, the threefold purposes, that we have seen here. And only when man steps outside of the commandments of God does it become a sin and a snare. And so it is a wonderful way in which uh, the right moral standards that God wants to see in human society uh, is preserved and maintained for the preventing of uncleanness. Well, we've just covered two sections this evening, but what a lot of teaching there is just within these two sections. We're going on, hopefully, next Sunday evening to look at sections 3, 4, 5, and 6 that speak about the Creator's um, restrictions as to who may marry and in what circumstances and dealing with that profoundly important matter in today's society of divorce. I leave you with this final thought. You may say polygamy today is not a problem in the Western world. Think about this. By the fact of easy divorce, are we not living, in effect, in deeply polygamous days? Because what is the effect of all too easy and all too ready divorce? And the answer is that a man is living, in effect, with two, three, four, or even five wives to which he is still in the eyes of God legitimately married. What is that if it is not polygamy in the eyes of God? And you know, I believe with all my heart that the commentators on this chapter are quite correct when they say that polygamy is still an issue today and it's not something that we should simply relegate to the early ages of mankind or certain primitive tribes that are alive in the world today. So you see, right from section one through to section two, every single thing that we have read about this evening is of vital importance in the world and in the church in which we live today. May God give to us indeed that biblical view of marriage and bless each one of us in the marriages that we have chosen and that we trust are within his providential plan for each of us. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful for this study this evening and what it's led us into, and we pray that we may continue to learn from the Scriptures and be challenged by them to the deepening and enlarging of the love that is shown and the mutual respect that is shared within our own marriages today. For Christ's sake, amen.